Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, December 14th. I want to start today's podcast by being completely transparent with you listeners. Unfortunately, we had a guest who had to reschedule their appearance on this show to next week. Thus, I got to call an audible in terms of our topic for today's podcast. Thankfully, it's the off season. Now's the best time to be able to call an audible as there are so many things for us to look back upon as we reflect on 2023. So many things for us to project as we look forward towards 2024. That said, what I want to do on today's show is revisit a topic we've actually focused upon this week. That topic, of course, is looking at the players who left us the most confounded coming out of the 2023 season. Players I have called the our 2023 confounding all-stars here this week. And by the way, if you've missed any of our podcasts here in the month of December, maybe today's the perfect day to catch up on any of that content you might have missed. Last week was State of the Union week. So many great discussions whether it be talking American men and women with Ben Rothenberg, next-gen men and women with David Kane, Ed McGrogan. Of course, this week, again, we've already talked confounding all-stars with David Gertler, with Jeff Sackman. We've talked junior tennis results with Colette Lewis. What I want to do on today's podcast is revisit some of those confounding all-stars we discussed over the course of this week. In particular, I want to focus on some of the players we might have lightly brushed over on Monday, Monday, excuse me, and Wednesdays. I said Mondays. That's combining Monday and Wednesday. We'll try that again, but leave it in. Monday and Wednesdays podcasts. Again, I want to revisit some of the players we might have rapid fired over. Players who I do think are some of the pivotal inflection point players for us to discuss, not only coming out of 2023, but certainly moving towards 2024. Players who I still have questions about in both good and bad ways. Again, I'm going to run you through my tiers of confounding all-stars from both the men's and women's side once again, just to offer you perhaps some clarity into how I approach thinking about who confuses me coming out of a season. And then I do want to, in particular, focus on six names that we skimmed over on Monday and Wednesday's episodes. Names that, again, I think deserve a deeper dive because I certainly have questions about these players. I imagine many of you listeners do as well moving forward. So again, we're revisiting an old topic here today. Yes, partially that's inaudible, but again, we got a lot of great content for you right now here at Crack Rackets, whether it's any of the mini breaks we have done here in the month of December, including, by the way, our ATP WTA award shows with David Kane, Gilgrim. Those were two of my favorite podcasts we've done throughout the course of this season. And again, we're not that far removed from offering those awards. So I think those episodes have aged well. Be sure to catch up on any mini break podcasts you might have missed. Be sure to also go check out a couple of our other feeds on the Great Shot podcast feed. We had our 2023 ATP Challenger Award show this week, myself and Damian Kust, breaking down the standout players of the season. We also have begun our deep dive, previewing the 2024 college tennis dual match season. How do we do that? We do that by previewing our top 10 teams entering the year. We've already 
discuss teams ranked 10 and 9 in our men's and women's rankings. Of course, we'll have episodes Tuesday through Friday focused on those college tennis previews, all of that content housed on the Great Shot podcast feed. And then I hope you didn't hit the skip 30-second mark because we have two fantastic interviews right now on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed that all of you tennis fans I am certain will enjoy. I spoke with world number one. Let me say that again. Current world number one doubles player, not singles player, Novak Djokovic. He saves his interviews for 60 minutes. No, we got the opportunity to speak with world number one doubles player, Austin Krejcik, about his breakout 2023 season. What changes happened, not just physically, but mentally, that allowed him to ascend to the top spot in the doubles rankings. And, you know, where does he go from here after a season like 2023? That's a fantastic conversation. I also had the opportunity to speak with one of the breakout stars of the 2023 season. Star might be a bit hyperbolic. But Yannick Hoffman will always be a star in our mind, former USC All-American, two-time team national champion, who ascended to the top 50 of the ATP singles rankings for the first time this year. He ends his season at number 51, and obviously that's a significant leap, particularly for a guy who turned 32 this past year. So I had to ask him, how did it happen? What clicked so beautifully for him this season? What was it like for him to make a run to a quarterfinals of a 1,000-level event from qualifying? What was it like to match up against Alcaraz, against Sinner? How do you game plan for matches like that? Fantastic interview. Again, two great guys, Austin Krejcik, Yannick Hoffman, dear friends of the program. Go check out what all they had to say uh, over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. And as always, this is the moment where I will ask, go subscribe, go like, go review all of our podcasts. It helps us with our sponsors who, again, we always are trying to renegotiate with heading into the new year so we can provide you even more content with more resources uh, to entertain all of you tennis fans with. Again, a thank you to all of you who tune in day in, day out. Be sure to check out not just this show, but the Great Shot podcast feed, Crack Interviews podcast feed, and a thank you to our dear friends at Tennis Point for their support of this podcast, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right. To start the show, I want to remind you what were my tiers of my confounding all-stars on the men's and women's side? How did I approach this exercise? Because, again, the word confounding, confusing, as both David Gertler and Jeff Sackman pointed out to me, it's an abstract concept, right? What confuses someone is it going to be in the different, in the minds of everyone. How I approach it is mostly from an upside standpoint. When I look at your results, whether in a positive or negative fashion, do do I believe there is more upside for you to tap into, whether it's from a statistical standpoint, I noticed something in particular, whether it's from an eye test standpoint, a player has all the physical tools, has all of the shots in their toolbox, they just can't seem to put everything together consecutively, not just in the course of one match, but over the course of, dare I say, six to eight months. You know, again, those are the topics I'm looking for because someone who's plateaued in the rankings, someone who has been, you know, again, I'm not particularly confused about a guy like Andre Rublev or a guy like Sasha Zverev, who the results have been pretty constant now for five years consecutively. Similarly, I'm trying to think of a lesser ranked player who has kind of floated in, like a Lorenzo Sinego. He's going to be like 30 to 50 in the rankings moving forward. On the women's side, I'm, like, David Gertler brought up Jessica Pagula. I thought that was a reprehensible, confounding all-star. What do we not know about Jessica Pagula's game after watching her play these last 
two and three quarters years. She is clearly one of the eight best players in the world. Clearly pretty darn solid at just about everything. I would say she's really good at everything. There's not really a hole in her game. The question is perhaps what's the upside, which is a fair question to ask, but like I'm not confused about anything uh, related to Jessica Pagula's game or her results. Again, there are players I am certainly confused about, and we'll start on the women's side, those tier one players we broke down on Monday, Madison Keys who I remain confounded by because you look statistically, Madison Keys is, uh, you know, again, still at the top of every list. One of six players to rank top 20 in both Holt and break percentage. Did you see what she did to Jessica Pagula in knocking her out at the U.S. Open? She's made semifinals now at hardcourt majors multiple times over the past couple of seasons. When she plays her best tennis... Madison Keys' best tennis is still as good as anyone in the world. And doing that week over week over a six-month stretch, that's not Madison Keys's M.O. She's not trying to rack up match counts the way a Sakari, a Kudermatova, a Kasatkina is. Madison Keys tries to peak at the right moments, bring her te- best tennis to the best events. And, you know, whether it was the run in Cincy a couple of years ago, obviously Australia last year, New York this year, you can point to a couple of different places She's doing a really good job of peaking at the right moments, preparing for these big events in the best way possible. And we've talked a lot of Madison Keys over the past few weeks. We didn't talk about her much earlier this week, but that's why I remain so puzzled because, you know, from a ranking standpoint, she has sort of plateaued. She's been in that 8 to 25 range now for much of the last half decade. She ends this past season at number 12. Again, given the lack of week-in, week-out consistency, that's probably an accurate metric for her. For what it's worth, you look at the tennis abstract ELO ratings, which again measure who you beat, how you beat them, not where and when, like the WTA rankings do. Madison Keys to end the 2023 season. She's 23rd in overall ELO rating. You want to look 2023 specific results on ELO. That's fair as well. Madison Keys, I think, a much more accurately reflected 13th in overall ELO. 33 and 16, that's 67% win percentage, the second best metric of her career, trailing only her 2016 season. You know, hold percentage, she's 76%, that's above her career average by 1.1%. Break percentage, 38.2%, that's a career high and 4.2% above her career average. And here's the kicker, she is still just 28 years old has a powerful game that's never been reliant on movement. It's been reliant on precision, on reliant on playing first strike tennis. Why can't she sustain this? You know what's fascinating? Madison Keys was not one of the six players I intended to talk more uh, about at length on today's show. But again, that's why she's confounding to me is because she has an ability to play on her terms in ways others don't. Again, semifinalist at US Open this year, quarterfinalist at Wimbledon. Her losses in both matches were to Sabalenka. And by the way, she won the first set six love against Sabalenka in the New York semifinal match. I'm just not willing to write off Madison Keys yet. I'm not willing to do it in terms of a potential to win the slam, uh, a slam, excuse me, entering the 2024 season. And... Maybe I'm the last one still in that camp. I'm definitely not because Madison Keys has a lot of loud, loyal fans out there. But that's why she remains confounding to me is because, again, from a ranking standpoint and from a career trajectory standpoint, like she's kind of been like this, dare I say, from the start. 
but the peak level is still so high. Anyway, she's tier one. We talked all about Potapova Kostyuk on Monday, so we can leave those two where they are. Tier number two, I talked less about. Um, that's Marie. And again, tier two is the players who I think are perennially in this category, who you're just a little bit confused about because the highs can be so high, but then there's just some sort of hurdle that they cannot overcome. Yelena Ostapenko often in this category. She's probably the MVP, if you were to name the confounding All-Stars MVP year after year, that trophy would be called the Yelena Ostapenko trophy because the upside is so evident, case in point, look at the EGA match that they played in New York this year. She was more consistent than ever before. Again, second best season of her career, trailing only that 2017 breakout French Open winning campaign for Ostapenko. And again, it's still just 26 years old. I still think there's more there. Barbara Krechikova, again, the upsides were so high. We've talked about her enough already. The fourth player in Tier 2 is one of the six I plan on approaching today. But again, those are the Tier 2 names to sort of rapid fire through why I'm still confused about all of them. Sakari is on that list. It's because, like, I don't get it. Like, there just shouldn't be a semifinal hurdle because her serve, her forehand, they've just turned into weapons that she can overwhelm lesser players with. Her physicality enables her to compete in every match that she plays and just linger. And yet then when things fall apart, they just fall apart so rapidly for soccer. And again, that's a mental hurdle, it feels like, more than anything else. And listen to Novak Djokovic in his 60 Minutes interview. I've made this point so many times of late. The mental side of the game. Go listen to Austin Krejcik in the Cracked Interviews podcast talk about it. It's the side you don't think about, but these players are training constantly to improve upon. I just think that improvement is there for Maria Sakkari because the desire is so evident. She will be the best version of herself. Some could argue maybe she already has maximized that, but I don't know. She's just confounding. Anyways, she's there. Tier three names I'm not going to talk about. Alexandrova, when it's good, it's so good. So again, how do you find a middle ground with her line drive tennis? Kalinina is a good athlete. She gets injured a lot, but she can do a lot of things. She hits the always hits the ball bigger than I remember whenever I watch her play. So again, Kalinina, mid-20s. She's mid-20s in both age and ranking. I don't know. I, I just think she's got the size, the movement. There might be a little bit more there. Paulini's got real weapons. I do think this year was a career high, though. Again, Rebecca Masarova, size, length, weapons. You watch her play, you're like, whoa, why aren't you ranked higher in the rankings then already? The consistency hasn't quite been there, but I could absolutely see her make a top 35 jump next season because on the right day, she has the game to do it. The weapons with the Estremska, everything off the court, maybe that's something else entirely. Clara Tossin, it's a matter of health, but I really thought she would bounce back this year and just she has not been able to get healthy. But again, it's confounding that she hasn't become a top 25 player because, oh, does she strike the ball beautifully? Anyways, that's my run through of the women's tiers. Just a reminder of my broader thinking there. Uh, of course, on the men's side of things, plenty of names to discuss as well. I still have more women specifically to get into three, as a matter of fact, for today's list. On the men's side, we talked all about Hubie Hercots with Jeff Sackman yesterday. We talked all about Alejandro Davidovich Fokina with Jeff Sackman yesterday. That's tier number one. Tier number two, we talked about Felix yesterday. One of the guys is who I'm scheduled to talk about today. Stefano Tsitsipas is the last tier two guy who I just, how good is he? Like, what are, what does Stefano Tsitsipas want? I know, wow, 
ain't that a loaded question? And boy, did I, obviously he's made clear he doesn't know that answer, and he's constantly searching for that answer. And perhaps distraction, distraction's the wrong word, but perhaps like, the quest for finding his de- inner desires, as he would perhaps even phrase it, you know, perhaps that sidetracked him from. I don't want to say the focus on tennis necessary to be good because Stefano Tsitsipas rolls out of bed with the number two hold percentage. His serve forehand combination is a top five combination we have on tour right now. His ability to dictate with that combo, it's not always the most consistent on grass, but that has more to do with his backhand return malfunctioning than his ability to dominate on serve on grass courts. It translates across surfaces when he's engaged, when he is fit, when he is focused, He's clearly one of the 10 best players in the world. Case in point, look at how frequently I think it's five straight tour finals for him, maybe six straight even at this point. Is the tier one upside still there? Does he have Grand Slam winning tennis with him? Is his fundamental flaw just a foundational weakness that guys like Sinner, Alcaraz, and maybe even Runa and others moving forward will be able to pick on that will prevent him from that ultimate conquest of a slam title, which again may not even be the ultimate conquest for him. What is What does Stefano Tsitsipas really want out of life? He clearly is searching for that answer, which again, he's in his mid-20s. I was, I'm still searching for what I want out of life. I think we all are. So I have no, like, again, I'm not criticizing Stefano Tsitsipas for his... I'm trying to think of the best word here because, again, I don't want to be critical, but his clearly – his other interests. I'm not I'm not criticizing him for his other interests. Of You know, again, for him to overcome the hurdle of the way Alcaraz foundationally with that heavy topspin forehand can attack the Tsitsipas backhand and just open things up to create easy opportunities to attack for himself. You see the pace of Sinner. You feel like nowadays he'd be able to implement a similar sort of game plan against Tsitsipas. What does Stefanos do to adjust? How, you know, how much work can really go into that backhand wing into minimizing the weakness enough to where it's no longer so easily attackable? And by the way, for what it's worth, FWIW, as the kids say, Tsitsipas has been top 25 in break percentage on clay each of the last two seasons. Now, he's not top 10. He's not even top 15. But his backhand return has been functional on clay courts, which is why Alcaraz whipping him so badly as he did earlier this year was so noticeable because it was like, whoa, if he can't get away with it on this surface, that is a foundational problem for Tsitsipas moving forward. Anyways, it's it's hard to write him off because, again, he has an ability to dictate on his terms at this level in a way so few other men have with that serve, with that forehand and he is physically he's strong. He moves well. He fights. Like he's gonna he's gonna scrap and claw and volley and just make you uncomfortable. But you can always find a default to make him uncomfortable. So again, he has to be a confounding all-star because has he plateaued or is there still another level to, to climb for him to get back to tier number one? See, Tsipasa, 98, right? He's 25 right now, turns 26 next year, as we learn from Jeff Sackman. That's allegedly when men peak uh, in terms of physical ability mental side catching up to that physical ability etc anyways you want to hear the case for jeff making about 26 year olds listen to that yesterday that's tier number two three man tier tier three uh includes a couple of players who i am going to discuss but at the top uh francisco sarundolo i went on gil gross's show and discussed him quite frequently of late so you can go check that out on gil's youtube channel his monday match analysis uh, discussed him at length i mean the the technique is so pure there, the weapons are clear. His forehand is a bazooka. 
I don't dislike his serve technique, so he should have more success on that wing than he does. He's had success on grass courts now. He's had success on hard courts in Miami, and obviously his breakthroughs came primarily on clay courts at the ATP challenger level. Could he be one of the 10 best players in the world one day? I'm not willing to write off the answer as no, and that's why he remains confounding. Hamad Medyedovic, we talked about a little bit. Uh, Alexi Paparin, serve forehand. Is there more there? But that serve forehand combo is so nice. Is Alexi Paparin Karen Hatchinov light? Is he a better version of Hatchinov? I just think there's something to that question. So that's why he's on this list. The Luka Vanasha, how can you be functional with that forehand technique? And yet, clearly, just he's got the fluidity. He reads the game so well, absorbs redirects on the backhand so well. He's interesting. Zheng Zhizhen, interesting because, again, he's got real weapons, real strength. It's a different body type, but, man, he's just uncomfortable to play against with the heaviness of his ball. So what's that upside for him moving forward? I think that's an interesting question. And then Alexander Shevchenko uh, is the last name on this list because, again, it's weird technique, and yet there's some real pop on that ball. And when he gets to hit the ball behind you and the heaviness of that shot and just how he competes, the the clear want, and I know that's such a superficial and subjective category, but this is a guy who just leaves it on the court. Every ball he's going after and the intensity, the passion, like Alexander Shevchenko is going to maximize his talent. I, I have no uncertainty about that my uncertainty comes around what does that maximization look like what is the upside and I think I like all of you still need to see a little bit more anyways that's a second rapid fire edition of my tears I do want to spend about two three minutes on six names in particular here before we wrap today's show and wrap I suppose this will be our last episode talking about the confounding all-stars from 2023 that much I promise you Let's talk about six names that I want to look at a little bit deeper. And I want to start with Cam Norrie, who I think by all metrics maybe had the most confusing season of anyone in the 2023 uh, year on the ATP side of things. You look for Cam Norrie, who, of course, last season was pretty consistently a top 10 player from start to finish throughout the course of the year. Of course, you look for Nori last year and what he was able to do, semifinals of Wimbledon coming off of that Indian Wells title, obviously in 2021 as well, his ability to you know make a fourth round at the U.S. Open as well. And I think you look for him overall last season. He made what? One, two, three, four, five different finals, made uh, won two different titles as well. Now they're both 250 titles, but still a five final season. He was, he was in the hunt for the year-end finals race. He finishes ultimately 14, but it was a second consecutive top 15. Fi- uh, excuse me, he finishes the year 12. Uh, no, he finishes the year 14. Lock that in, but a second consecutive top 15 season that, again, had he not faltered a little bit down the stretch, Paris, etc., probably would have seen him qualify for the tour final. Or, excuse me, had Wimbledon offered points last year, which it did not, he probably qualifies for the tour finals because that was the big thing missing from his resumes. He didn't get credit for that as no Russians were allowed to play the event. And yet, you know, again, 
Now you come off of this 2023 season for Cam Nori. It's hard to describe it as anything but a massive disappointment, particularly given how it started. And, you know, again, you look uh, for Nori, who for what it's worth, Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings ends the year 39th in overall ELO rating. You want to go 2020 specifically, his 36 and 25 record good for 90th in 2023 specific ELO. Goes 36 and 25 overall in the year. 59% win percentage again. Lowest number for him since I'm going to go back to the 2019 season when he went 21 and 25 at the tour level. And again, this is a year that started for him making a final in Auckland. Yes, he lost third round at the Australian Open to Lachechka, but he loses in the final of Buenos Aires, chooses to play clay because that was a part of the calendar where he had struggled in prior seasons, and he thought, hey, if I could share, uh, shore up that surface with the grass success, the hard court success, now he's a really complete player, and it felt like all things were heading in that direction. Not only did he, again, final Buenos Aires, he wins Rio, the 500-level event in Brazil, beating Carlos Alcaraz on clay courts. Yes, Alcaraz was a little bit injured, but still, talk about an impressive win for Nori right out of the gates. He starts his year, what, through that reload point, he was 8-2, and two. I'm doing math in my head, plus Davis Cup, 13-3, and three. then he gets five wins. He was 18-3 and three to start the season, 21-4 and four after he reached the quarterfinals at Indian Wells. This is a guy who started his season 21-4. and four. After that, things were a serious struggle. You look for Nori the rest of the season, 15-21 and 21 the rest of the way. After Indian Wells, he made just three quarterfinals the rest of the season. He made a quarterfinal in Lyon, quarterfinal in Queens Club, quarterfinal in Zoo High as well. Now, for what it's worth, that is quarterfinals on all three surfaces. But third-round loss, Roland Garros to Musetti. Third-round loss, uh, Arinaldi at the U.S. Open. Second-round loss to Eubanks at Wimbledon. A disappointing year, no doubt about it, for Cam Norton. You look for him overall in first matches at events this season, 15-8 and eight overall. Uh, you look for him in second matches at events this year, 10-5. and five. That's actually pretty impressive. But again, after Rio, he didn't make another final the rest of the season. And you look at his record against top 20 opponents overall this year, 4-10 and 10 overall in the year. But again, after Indian Wells, he goes 0-8. The rest of the way, you look for him against top 10 opponents, 4-6. and six, But again, after Indian Wells, he was 0-5 against top 10 opponents. The other thing was the regression in particular and some of the statistics you see for Nori, perhaps most notably, was the regression you saw for him uh, in, in his effectiveness on serve. I mean, I thought in particular, it's not necessarily the regression, but maybe it was the fact that it stayed constant. Maybe it was the fact that people just seemed to know the spots that Nori liked to serve to a little bit more this year. They know the slice wide They uh, on the ad side. They know he likes to hit that slider up the tee away from you, or I guess hook curveball, however you want to look at it, the lefty slice. You know, again, they know he wants to sit on that first forehand. They know, yeah, he's going to drive with great depth, great pace on that backhand wing. But again, if you're patient on that side, you're going to have an opportunity to maybe play with more pace through that forehand wing, which, again, given the length of Nordy's backhand, I think that's the uh, length of his forehand backswing, excuse me, I think that's the side he'll often leave short for opponents to attack upon. I mean, again, by the way, Nori ultimately loses nine of his last 11 matches on the season. Who were the losses to? It is worth noting. Djokovic, Zverev, Rublev. No shame in any of those. A loss to Fritz. Again, that's a guy who's played a bunch in his career, but no shame in that. 
Then losses to Wolf, Karatsev, Umber, Wawrinka, Arnaldi. I mean, again, all those guys are top 50 players, maybe Sans Wawrinka, but that's a tough stretch for Cam Norrie to wrap up his season. And you just do wonder for Cam Norrie now, 28 years old, you know, finishes the year, by the way, ranked 18 in the world. Not a bad spot for Norrie to be, particularly given he didn't have any particular notable slam success, and that feels like low-hanging fruit for him right away to improve upon. That said, he'll lose those 500 points from Rio at the end of February, right? He'll lose those Indian Wells quarterfinal points pretty quickly as well. Even that final uh, the week prior in South America where he lost to Alcaraz, like he's got a lot of points front-loaded that have him up to number 18 right now, and you just wonder for Cam Nori if he's no longer seated in these events, if he's going to be playing Arnaldi's and Umber's and all of these guys in first rounds, what's the pathway for him to clearly advance towards those guys, right? Because, you know, Cam Norrie from 20, I mean, 20, 21, 2022, as he's making this rise, there was a, physic, a level and degree of physicality that just so few other players on tour could match. And I do think as this group has collectively gotten older, they've all collectively improved physically. And I just don't know how much of a comparative advantage that is for Nori in a way it was when we were calling him Iron Lungs back in 2022. Again, weapons-wise, he hits his spots really well. He's extraordinarily consistent, can do a little bit of everything, but he doesn't have the massive weapons, even of an Ugo Umber who hits an even perhaps more powerful lefty slice wide per first forehand combination on the ad side, and it's just a little bit more potent with that serve plus one power. Now, again, Nori's really steady on the return of serve. He's been a top 25, top 20 returner, really, if not better, top 10, top 15 these last three seasons. It's worth noting his break percentage regressed this year, 24.5. That's actually below his career average, though still a top 20 number. I mean, again... I think pl- people are serving more through his forehand than his backhand side now because, again, he is so steady and that backhand is so compact with a backswing. I just wonder, is there a pathway back for Cam Norrie to his career high of number eight? Is there a pathway back for him to the top 15? It's certainly tough from a points perspective. You know, again, is is this year's trend in the second half of the season indicative of maybe this is more where Norrie belongs? He'll be a guy ranked... 30, I'm not willing to write him out of the top 100, no chance. But maybe he's more in the 30 to 60 range than the 11 to 30 range. That's a question I certainly have going into 2023. I'd bet on Cam. I know him. I know his work ethic. I know how the only person more frustrated maybe than his fans by this 2023 season ending is Cam Norrie himself. I would still bet on Cam. He's only 28 years old, two months older than me. We got a lot of meat left on the bone. But I do think he was one of the confounding all-stars of 2023 because the regression came out of nowhere, particularly given, again, that 21-4 and start to his 2023 season. He's the first player I wanted to talk about. I'm not going to spend as long on these next ones because we've talked about all of these players at some point. We'll go quicker next through Ludmilla Samsonova and a little uh, teaser. That's the word teaser for all of you tennis fans. David Kane's actually writing a piece on Ludmilla Samsonova, so be on the lookout for it on tennis.com. But 
How is she not one of the most fascinating players as we look at this offseason and head towards 2024? She finishes the year 10th in 2023 specific ELO rating. She finishes the year 19th in overall ELO rating, 34 and 24 overall in the year. Worse win percentage than last year, but those 34 wins, the most she's ever gotten in a full tour-level season. And by the way, she's progressed now in terms of tour-level victories in each of the last three years. The hold percentage regressed. Down 5% from last year, 74.3, but that's still a top 25 number. The break percentage improved up to 32.5, a career high for her, though still below the average of a top 50 player by about 2.5%, 3%. She got better on the margins and really did well after a disappointing, dare I say, first two-thirds of the season and backing up what she did at the end of 2022. No, it wasn't quite as top dominant. She didn't rip through Cincinnati, uh, excuse me, D.C., rip through uh, Cleveland, undefeated, rip through a Tokyo year-end title run as well, but she came pretty darn close to it. Semifinals at a 500-level event in Washington this year. Finals of Montreal where she beat Sabalenka, Rabakina, Benchich all consecutively. Finals of Beijing, where she beats Rabakina, Ostapenko, Kvitova before getting knocked out by Iga. Some serious runs to just remind everyone what arrow uh, direction the arrow is pointing for the 25-year-old Samsonova, who, by the way, is a young 25. She turned 25 in November. So what I mean by that is next year is her age 25 season, still clearly smack dab in her prime. As I was talking about with DK for his article, she just has weapons that allow her to play on her terms. The kick wide, the first forehand, the backhand drive. The you know Again, I've said this before. Her hitting partner from Cleveland two years ago described her ball as just like as heavy as any ball he'd seen, men's or women's. It's just up there. And that pace cannot be matched by her opponents. And oftentimes when I feel like I see Samsonova struggle, it's because she is misfiring. Oftentimes not because it's something her opponent is doing to make her uncomfortable. She just has real weapons, real upside. And this is not an unfamiliar thing, as we talked about her a little bit in the State of the Union Next Gen WTA pod with David Kane last week. But I think she's got the most mobility of anyone not in their early 20s or teenage years. She's, you know, again, I think she still has tier one mobility. She's still young in her tour level life. You look for her again, career tour level matches, 25 years old. She's played a career 100, excuse me, 200. And we're doing some quick math here. 237 career matches uh, for Ludmilla Samsonova, which uh, includes, by the way, a bunch of qualifying matches. So Again, I imagine she has played about 150 or 175 main draw matches in her career. That's a pretty low number for someone who's 25 years old. And yet, again, she's won some significant titles or made some significant finals and still waiting for a big slam run. Certainly, we've seen her make, you know, round of 16s at slams before. I haven't seen that quarterfinal click yet. I think that's um I think that's probably goal number one for her this year is make a quarterfinal at a slam, take that next step. And again, she's sixteen in the majors, uh sixteen in the rankings. I would be buying stock still in Ludmilla Samsonova. She's confounding all star honorable mention number two. Number three is the aforementioned Matteo Arnaldi. How can you not be fascinated by the Italian coming off of a season where you know, again, I don't want to say it came out of nowhere, but fifty and twenty-six Overall on the year, 20 and 15 at the tour level. And, you know, again, challenger success as well. The win over Popperin and Davis Cup to help 
the Italians, uh, 51 and 26, excuse me, overall on the season to help the Italians lift the Davis Cup fourth round, obviously, for him at the U.S. Open, where he beats an Arthur Fee. He beats a seated Camp Nori. Like, follows it up, by the way, qualifying in Beijing, winning a match there, wins a couple of matches at the Shanghai Masters as well. What a season for a guy who I imagine most of you could not delineate from the other young Italians that we have competing right now out there from a Nardi or, you know, again, there, there are too many to pick from. But it's just worth noting where Matteo Arnaldi was to start the 2023 season. You look at it from a rankings perspective, first and foremost, again, this guy who ends his year ranked number 44 uh, overall in the ATP singles ranking. This is a guy who started the 2023 season at number 134 overall in the rankings. This is a guy who made his top 200 debut in August of last year. Like, a precipitous climb. He went from 106 in at the end of May. May 29th this year, he was at 106. Ends his year at 44, reached a career high of 41 at the end of October. Again, that is a significant leap for a guy who turned 22 years old this year. For a guy who, again, has played a career 39 tour-level matches, according to Tennis Abstract. He was pretty good at everything as well. Just he's mobile. He's fluid. I don't see any serious deficiencies in his technique that seem attackable. Does he have a distinguishably excellent serve or a distinguishably excellent hold percentage, first serve win percentage, first serve make percentage that stands out from either his challenger or early ATP successes? No, he does not. I don't see a clear statistical deficiency either. And again, this one is very much eye test related because the sample size is still so small for Arnaldi, but... There is a twitchiness to everything he does, a springiness to his ground strokes. I am looking forward to watching more of Matteo Arnaldi at the highest levels next season because I don't know about grass court tennis. Grass court tennis is so weird. You guys know my thoughts on grass court tennis. It's the surface I care the least about just because it's one month on the season. It's it's a sprint. Like You don't even have time to catch your breath and figure out, is this guy even good at this surface? Because he plays six matches and then he doesn't play any more grass court in the season. But clay courts, hard courts, I know Arnaldi's going to be good. Again, the hard court successes this year, you keep in mind the majority of his previous success had come on clay courts to challenger titles this year on clay, although a third challenger title on hard courts back in January as well. He's just good. I just don't know how else to say it. If the 22-year-old's not on your radar, I don't know if he's going to be top eight, but he's going to be top 20 for a solid, like top 30. He's just going to be seated at slams for a really long time. Like, he could be that 26 seed who everyone has in the early upset category because you forget how solid he is all around, and he's playing one of your young players who you really like because that young player's got a really nice weapon, and that weapon's just not going to hold up over the entirety of things Arnaldi can do. And again, he's more of a BCD guy than a plan A guy. I don't know what the weapon that will make life easiest for himself will be moving forward, but he's got a lot of options to pick from. And so he's in my confounding all-stars. What exactly is Arnaldi's ceiling? I'm not entirely sure. I'm also not entirely sure about the ceiling of our next player, Beatrice Haddad Maya, who obviously has a, a very fascinating career path, and it's a career path that was obviously interrupted by an anti-doping violation, but a career path that, 
you know, again, she's since the start of 2021. I'm, I haven't pulled up the statistic in a while, folks. So I think this is an update. All of us deserve. Obviously, Beatrice Adonmaya losing her ranking because of that suspension has to build herself all the way back. Since coming back from suspension in August of 2020, Beatrice Adonmaya has played 260 matches. 260 matches in about three years. That's a lot of tennis. That's Again, it's north of 80 matches per season. It speaks to, again, the fact that she's been able to build herself back up to number 11 in the rankings, the fact that during that stretch of time, you look at, again, whether it was 15Ks, 25Ks, 60Ks, 100Ks, she played them all. She's won at all of those levels. Obviously, over the last couple of years, she's won titles on the grass in Nottingham and Birmingham on the hard courts in Zhuhai at that elite trophy event to end the year. Our arrow's pointing up for Beatrice Haddad Maya. You look for her during this stretch of time against top 50 opponents. She's 36 and 27 against the top 20. She's 19 and 13 overall against top 10 opponents. She's eight and five. That's since August, 2020. That's not this year. That's over a three-year stretch. Again, 19 and 13 against top 20 opponents, eight and five against the top 10. The lefty has weapons. She's often in that top 25 club mix. The break percentage gets a little bit low, but she's always someone you're going to find top 25 from a hold percentage standpoint. Like Again, it has proven she can be one of the best doubles players in the world as well, which speaks to perhaps her ability on the return of serve, where she's a little bit more aggressive. And yeah, that forehand can be a little bit streaky. But man, when she's taking the ball early on the rise, she also knows exactly how she wants to execute, how she wants to assert herself with her weapons. That lefty serve can get you stretched in uncomfortable positions. She's really good. Like Beatrice Haddad Maya is really good. Is she great? Is she... Sniffing tier one, she did make a French Open semifinal this year, and I know there wasn't a ton after that, but again, 19 and 13 since August 2020 against top 20 opponents. I would I would guess Iga, maybe Sabalenka, maybe Rabakina, over five and Ashley Barty. Over five hundred and, and maybe Jessica Pagula. I don't know about Pagula, but over 500 against top 20 opponents since August 2020. If one of you fans listening wants to look that stat up, tag me at A.L. Gruskin on Twitter. I would be happy to provide you the retweet. How many players who have played at least 30 matches against top 20 opponents have a winning record against them since the start of this pandemic era of WTA Tour play? I would guess Iga. I would guess Sabalenka. And I think Ashley Barty. Because I, I bet she snuck in that many during her brief stretch, although maybe she didn't. But that would be my list, like of players with a winning record with at least thirty matches against top twenty opponents. And Haddad Maya is on that list. What is her upside? Is there even more to tap into? I think it's a fascinating question moving forward. My last two confounding all-stars are both young players. So again, to be confused about them, maybe not surprising given when they're at in their career. And maybe Arnaldi's young too. So maybe he should should qualify for this category. Haddad Maya, 27. So again, it's that this rise has been so rapid for her back to the top of the game. And we really haven't seen her play that. You know, again, it's a higher ascent than prior to her suspension. So... That's why I think still confounding Beatrice Adonmaya. But next up is Lorenzo Musetti, who I just like, I don't know. He's really athletically gifted, 
really athletically gifted, extraordinarily fluid. He's, you know, again, still pretty darn young as well. Could have played the next-gen finals this year. Doesn't turn 22 until March. 33-29 and 29 overall on this season. Last year, he was 34-29. and 29. Now, you know, again, he didn't have the Naples or Hamburg runs this year that he did last season. But I thought it was a pretty consistent year overall for Lorenzo Musetti. Look for him first matches of events, 15-11, and 11, but he lost five of his first six and last four of the season so he can clean up the corners. That's certainly an easy, targetable area for him to improve moving forward. Again, yes, he's got a one-handed backhand, but that one-handed backhand absorbs, redirects pace so extraordinarily well. He hits the slice so well. He's a willing volleyer who's incorporating more serve and volley, more early rally aggression to try to make life a little bit easier for himself so he doesn't have to sprint around the court, which he's still more than capable of doing. The forehand technique still not the greatest, but I think he has started to... Wow. He lost his first... I just want to point out, he lost five of his first six first-round matches. Then he lost seven of his last eight matches overall. That's tough. It's a tough stretch for Lorenzo Musetti. Anyways... Despite those stretches, 32-29 and 29 overall on the year. You look for him again. Lost first-round U.S. Open, but round of 16 Roland Garros. Third-round Wimbledon. Quarterfinals Monte Carlo. First-round loss Australian Open. There are a lot of low-hanging fruit for Lorenzo Musetti. Again, given the lack of major success that he's still 27 in the world, there's some low-hanging fruit for him to really make a push back up the rankings. And, you know, again, players of his generation, Sinner, Alcaraz, Runa, they've all surpassed him pretty quickly. Even a guy like Ben Shelton, you might argue, with his major successes, has he already surpassed Lorenzo Musetti in that next-gen 2.0 hierarchy? Should he have surpassed Musetti, given the broader body of work we've seen from the 21-year-old Musetti already? I just could see him having a rejuvenated bounce back. Don't forget about me in this next-gen 2.0 conversation moving forward I just I think the Italian has that in him. I really like his game, his skills. I just still think it's a matter again, a guy who can do B, C, and D. It's finding A for himself, and I think the options are there. I think the forehand is improved enough that it's not just so easily attackable on quick surfaces. He's a guy to watch for me. And then last but certainly not least, how about Linda Fruvertova? Talk about a weird year for one of the most highly touted juniors of her generation. She won the coveted Le Petit AS 14 and under championship. You know, her sister Brenda, by the way, who's also two years younger, but also already a top 150 player. And by the way, Fruvertova, one of six teenagers in the top 100 to end the year. So even with the lack of success she has, it wasn't a glass ceiling falls out from underneath her sort of season. You look for Linda, who, by the way, finishes 195 in yearly ELO, her younger sister Brenda, 105. Fruvertover still finishes 92 overall on the year. She still ultimately did make a fourth round in Australia, a semifinal in Ningbo to end the year. But obviously the big concern for someone who went 20 and 28 overall on the season, there was a stretch of matches where she lost just straight up 10 in a row from the end of Birmingham to the start of Ningbo. And during that stretch, she lost not only 10 in a row, she lost 16 of 20 it was the middle of the season was really rough for the 18-year-old Fruvertova, whose backhand does not need any questioning or reexamination. That backhand is special. 
Forehand needs some work. Like the forehand is attackable. The forehand sits a little bit short. The forehand sits a little bit high. The serve is okay, but the second serve definitely floats up. And again, every 18-year-old is going to need to work on her on their serves. Hers was particularly attackable at the tour level this season. Again, her ability to strike a backhand is elite, elite, elite. If you give her time on that forehand wing, she can move it really well around the court. But if you take time away, that's when you really expose it as a potential weakness. The movement's gotten better, but it's a little stiff in and out of corners, which is a struggle for her when you're facing the elite weaponry of WTA tour-level players. You know, again, Vertova was so highly touted. Daddy her, Orange Bulls, all the things. She never won a Junior Slam, did very well in doubles at Junior Slams, but never won a Junior Slam singles title, but still already has a tour-level title to her name, has already made a fourth round at a major. To do those two things by 18 alone and be a top 100 player, one of just six teenagers who can say that, she is clearly on a very talented path. Like Again, I have no doubt she's going to be at least a top 100 player throughout the course of her career. I am curious what the ceiling is for Linda Fruvertova moving forward. She's reached a career high of 49. Again, that was earlier this year. She now is at 92 to end the season. Has a ton of points coming off of her record right away at the Australian Open. If she can't follow that up with, say, a second round, third round, even if she can't get a win there, there will be a precipitous drop down the rankings. And then how does she build her way back up again? 100Ks, et cetera. It's just a tough life for Fruvertova. There's some pressure on her right away to find some success. What's the ceiling? What's the upside for Linda Fruvertova? It's a question I'm asking myself, and it's a question I think is a legitimate one. Is Again, she was one of those prospects entering the WTA Tour ranks. Again, she's going to be a top 100 player for a long time. How much higher than that does she ascend? How much higher into the top 50 will she perhaps reach in her career? I think it's an open question and one I certainly look forward to monitoring in 2024. That said, that, folks, is your follow-up. That is your 2023 Confounding All-Stars Honorable Mention. And that is your penultimate episode of Nerd Week here on the Mini Break Podcast feed. Again, if you've missed anything we've done, not just this week, but this month, State of the Unions with Rothenberg, McGrogan, Kane, this week with Colette, with Jeff, with David. It's been a fantastic month of podcasts, and we're going to keep rocking and rolling. I promise that to all of you listeners. So stay tuned for more content. In the meantime, go check out the Great Shot Podcast feed or the Cracked Interviews Podcast feed, where again, Austin Krejcik, Yana Kaufman have joined me here this week. Of course, a thank you as always, and shout out to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A thank you to him, and a shout out, of course, to our dear friends at Tennis Point as well, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for the fantastic Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say? That's the break. Thanks, everyone.